The following chapter is taken from the book Triumphing Over Sinful Fear, Conquering It Through Faith by John Flavel. Introduction. Do not say a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say confederacy. Neither fear you their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he shall be for a sanctuary. Isaiah 8, verses 12 to 14. There is as much diversity in people's inward moods and dispositions as in their outward features. Some are as frightened as rabbits and jump at every sound, even a dog's bark. Some are as bold as lions and face danger without trembling. Some fear more than they ought, some before they ought, and others when they ought not at all. The carnal person fears man, not God. The strong Christian fears God, not man. The weak Christian fears man too much and God too little. There is a fear which is the effect of sin. It springs from guilt and hurries us all into more guilt. There is a fear which is the effect of grace. It springs from our love for God and his interest and drives the soul to him in the way of duty. The less fear a person has, the more happiness he has, unless, of course, it is that fear which is his happiness and excellence. It cannot be said of any person, as it is said of Leviathan, he is made without fear, Job 41, verse 33. The strongest people are not without some fears. When the church is in the storms of persecution and almost covered with the waves, her most courageous passengers may suffer as much from this boisterous passion within as from the storm without. This is a result of not thoroughly believing or seasonably remembering that the Lord, admirable of all the oceans and commander of all the winds, is on board the ship to steer and preserve it from the storm. A weighty example of this very thing is found in the context, where we discover that the best people tremble in expectation of the worst events, both on the church in general and themselves in particular. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim, and his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind, Isaiah 7 verse 2. If their danger is measured by sense alone, then their fear does not exceed its cause. As a matter of fact, their danger seems to exceed their fear. For a foreign and cruel enemy, Assyria, is about to break upon them like a breach of the sea and overflow the land of Emmanuel. Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up upon them the waters of the river strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. Isaiah 8 verse 7. This verse describes the enemy as waters that quickly drown the country upon which they break. The next verse tells us how far this enemy will prevail and how close a country will come to total ruin. And he shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breath of the land, O Emmanuel. All the land except the capital city will be under water. Having described the invading enemy's power and success, God derides our plots and schemes, Isaiah 8, verses 9 to 10. Although he permits them to afflict his people for a time, for his own just and holy ends, he assures them that the issue of all their counsels and cruelties will recoil upon them, 
and result in their own ruin and confusion. He then commands Isaiah to encourage the feeble and trembling hearts of those who fear him in the midst of those terrifying times. For the Lord spake thus to me, with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say you not, a confederacy. Isaiah 8, verses 11 to 12. Speaking to the prophet with a strong hand, God uses a mighty impression that the spirit of prophecy makes upon his heart. He lays, as it were, his hand upon him, as a person does upon one to whom he is about to impart some special secret in a familiar way. Drawing him close, with a friendly hand, he says, Come here, Isaiah. Take note of what I am about to entrust to you, in respect to yourself and my elect people who follow you. Do not say, A confederacy. To whomever this people say a confederacy. In other words, do not let these frightful tidings affect you the way that they affect Ahaz and those with him. They are so terrified at the approaching danger that all their counsel, thoughts, and studies are occupied with preventing it. They seek an alliance with Assyria, Hosea 5, verse 13. If that fails, then they will seek protection from some foreign power against Assyria. But their eyes do not look to me for protection and deliverance. They expect more from Egypt than from heaven, more from a broken reed than from the rock of ages. Do not fear their fear. It drives them from me to the creature. It first distracts them and then ensnares them. In marked contrast, see that you and all the faithful in the land sanctify me in your hearts and make me your fear and dread. Rely upon me by faith in this day of trouble. See that you give me the glory of my wisdom, power, and faithfulness by relying entirely upon my attributes that are engaged for you in so many tested promises. Do not give yourselves to sinful and vain dealings if those who have no interest in me nor experience of me. That is a text, general scope, and design. In terms of its particulars, we find a sin condemned, a remedy prescribed, and a motive encouraged. First, a sin condemned. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid, Isaiah 12. This kind of fear is a sinful principle. It will incline them to do what their countrymen did, namely to say confederacy. Sinful fear will cause the best people to attempt to help themselves through sinful compromises. This is a fear that plagues the carnal and unbelieving Jews. It enslaves them in a bondage of spirit. It is a fruit of sin, a sin in its own nature and a cause of much sin. It is God's just punishment upon them for their other sins. But Isaiah's listeners must not permit their fear to produce in them such negative effects. They must not forget God, magnified the creature, preferred their own schemes and policies to God's almighty power and unchanging faithfulness. Number two, a remedy prescribed. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Isaiah 8, verse 13. The fear of God will swallow up the fear of man. A reverential awe and dread of God will extinguish a creature's slavish fears, the rain puts out the fire. To sanctify the Lord of hosts is to acknowledge the glory of his sovereign power, wisdom, and faithfulness. 
It includes not only a verbal confession, but internal acts of trust, confidence, and an entire dependence upon Him. These are our choicest respects towards God, and gave Him the greatest glory. Moreover, they are the most beneficial and comfortable acts we perform for our own peace and safety in times of danger. If we look to God in a day of trouble, fear Him as the Lord of hosts, the one who governs all creatures and commands all the armies of heaven and earth, and rely upon His care and love as a child depends upon His Father's protection, then we will know rest and peace. Who would be afraid to pass through the midst of armed troops and regiments? The more does filial fear his power over our hearts, the less we will dread the creature's power. When the dictator ruled at Rome, then all officers ceased. Likewise, when the fear of God is dictator in the heart, all other fears will in great measure cease. A motive encouraged. And he shall be for a sanctuary, Isaiah 8:14a. If we sanctify the Lord of hosts by acknowledging him and dependent upon him in times of danger, then he will be our sanctuary. He will surely protect, defend, and provide for us in the worst times and cases. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and a shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense, and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. Isaiah 4, 5 and 6. Let the wind roar, the rain beat, the lightning flash. We are in safety and have a good roof over our heads. Conclusion Two points of doctrine emerge from the above explanation of the text. First, the best people are easily overcome with slavish fear in times of imminent distress and danger. Second, the fear of God is the most effectual means for extinguishing sinful fear and keeping us from danger. These two doctrines capture the scope and substance of the text. In the following chapters, I will not belabor them but focus my attention on the types, uses, cause, effects, and remedies of fear. Types of Fear, Chapter 2 There is a threefold fear in humanity, natural, sinful, and religious. Natural fear. Everyone experiences natural fear. It is a trouble or agitation of mind that arises when we perceive approaching evil or impending danger. It is not always sinful, but it is always a fruit and consequence of sin. Ever since sin entered human nature, it has been impossible to shake off this fear. As soon as Adam transgressed, he feared, hiding himself amongst the trees of the garden, Genesis 3 verse 8. When he transgressed the covenant, he immediately feared the execution of the curse. First, he eats. Then, he hides. He transmitted this afflictive passion to all his children. It pleased our Lord Jesus Christ to subject himself to natural fear in the days of his flesh. He was afraid. Even so are amazed, Mark 14, verse 33. Although his human nature was absolutely free from sin, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Romans 8, verse 3. This fear creates great trouble and agitation in the mind. Fear has torment. 
1 John 4, verse 18. The agitation of the mind is proportionate to the fear, which in turn is proportionate to the perceived danger. When fear is exceeding great, reason is displaced and unable to guide us. We become like sailors in a storm when the psalmist describes us at their wit's end. Psalm 107, verse 27. This is the meaning of Deuteronomy 28, verse 25. The Lord shall cause you to be smitten before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and shall be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. In other words, their fear and destruction are so great that they attempt to flee one way than another, striving every way but liking none. Their fear impedes the aid of reason to such an extent that their counsels are always uncertain and at a loss. A person's usual cry in this condition is this, I don't know what to do. I don't know which way to turn. Evil is the object of fear. The greater the evil, the stronger the fear. For this reason, the terrors of an awakened conscience are the greatest terrors. In this case, people deal with a great and terrible God. They are scared with the apprehensions of his infinite and eternal wrath. No evil is greater than that. Christ's conflict with it was so great that it made him sweat as it were great drops of blood. Death. It's the greatest of all temporal evils. Therefore Job calls it the king of tears. Job 18 verse 14. Jacques Auguste de Thos, a French historian, relates two strange instances of the fear of death. The first is of a captain who was so terrified with the fear of death that a bloody sweat poured out from every part of his body. The second is a young man whom Pope Sixtus V condemned to death for a trivial manner. He was so terrified at the prospect of death that he shed bloody tears. These are strange and terrible effects of fear, yet vastly short of what Christ suffered. He grappled with a far greater evil than the terrors of death namely the pouring out of God's wrath fully and immediately upon him. Evil is a principal object of hatred. However, when evil is imminent, it also provokes fear. The saints in glory are perfectly free from fear because they are beyond the reach of all danger. We, on the other hand, are in the midst of all kinds of evil. We do not fear them until we see them approaching and are uncertain how to avoid them. To hear a fire, plague, or sword in a foreign country does not frighten us, because the evil is so remote. It is so far away that we are in no danger. However, when it is in our town, or even worse, in our home, we tremble. Evil does not hurt us through our mere apprehension of it, but our experience of it. It is worth observing that all carnal security is maintained by putting evil at a great distance from us. It is said of secure sensualists, they put far away the evil day. Amos 6 verse 3. This does not mean that they put the evil day further away from them in reality, but only in their imagination. They shut their eyes and refuse to see it, lest it should interrupt their happiness. This is a reason why death does not frighten the living. It is apprehended as remote at an undetermined distance. The precise time of death were known, 
especially if that time were near, it would terrify them. This fear is the affliction of nature. We all groan under its effects. It is in all creatures to some degree, but most prevalent in people. It makes them their own tormentors. When it prevails on a high degree upon us, it is the greatest of torments. Indeed, not all constitutions and temperaments experience the same degree of fear. Some people are naturally bold and courageous. They are like the lion in bravery and fortitude. Some people are exceedingly cowardly and faint-hearted. They are like the deer or rabbit. One little dog will make a hundred of them flee. Martin Luther was a man of great courage and presence of mind in the midst of danger. But Melanchthon, on the other hand, was very fearful and subject to despondency. The difference between them is expressed in one of Luther's letters to Melanchthon. I'm a secure spectator of things. I do not fear anything those fierce and threatening papists say. I dislike those anxious cares, which, as you write, almost consume you. There might be as much grace in one as in the other. But Melanchthon's grace did not have the advantage of Luther's bold and courageous temperament of body and mind. Sinful fear. There is a fear that is normally and intrinsically sinful. It is not only our unhappiness, but our fault. It is not only our affliction and burden, but our great evil and provocation. Such is a fear cautioned against in our text, where it is called their fear, Isaiah 8, verse 12. When danger threatened, carnal and unbelieving people experience this fear. Its sinfulness lies in five things. First, its cause. Sinful fear arises from unbelief, an unworthy distrust of God. This occurs when we fail to rely upon the security of God's promise. In other words, when we refuse to trust in God's protection. This is the case with Israel. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, and you would not. But you said, No, for we will flee upon horses. Therefore shall you flee, and we will ride upon the swift. Therefore shall they that pursue you be swift. One thousand shall flee at the rebuke of one. Isaiah 30, verses 15 to 17. The situation here is as follows. Sennacherib, along with a mighty army, is ready to invade Israel. This frightens the people. In their distress, God assures them through his prophet that in returning and rest they will be saved, and in quietness and confidence they will be strengthened. This means that they must not involve themselves with counsels and schemes designed to secure them under the wings of Egypt or some other protector. On the contrary, they must rest upon God's power with a calm, quiet, and composed state of mind. They must take His promises for their security. This will be their salvation and strength, more effective to their preservation in armies, garrisons, or any other defense in the world. In a word, one act of faith will do them more good than Pharaoh and all his forces, but they refuse to trust God. They decide that a good horse will do them more service than a good promise. They think Egypt offers them better security than heaven. This is the fruit of gross infidelity. 
Wicked people forsake God and cleave to the creature in times of trouble. Some of this distrust is found in the best people. It was in the disciples Christ asked them, Why are you fearful? O you of little faith. Matthew 8 verse 26 A storm arises at sea. Danger begins to threaten them. Suddenly their fear is more boisterous than the wind. It has more need of calming than the sea. It arises from their unbelief. The less their faith, the greater their fear. If we were to rely upon God's promise so far as he enables us to believe, we would reckon ourselves to be very secure. Matthias Flacius Illyricus, a Lutheran reformer, relates a remarkable account of Andreas Proles, an aged and godly divine, who lived a little before Martin Luther. He taught many points of doctrine soundly according to the light available to him at that time. Having been called to a synod at Milan, he opposed a post proposal to institute a new church holiday as an unnecessary burden. As a result of his opposition, his life was in danger. After escaping, he bought weapons to protect himself. However, one day as he was writing, he remembered the cause belongs to God. It was not to be maintained with sword and bow. What could a decrepit old man do with weapons anyway? Soon after, he threw them away and committed his journey to God. He relied upon God's promises more than sword or bow. He returned home safely and years later died quietly in his bed. Fear. It's excess. The sinfulness of fear lies in its excess and moderacy. When we fear more than we ought, we might say of our fears, a philosopher says of water, it is hard to keep it within bounds. Every bush is a bear. Every petty trouble frightens us. Our fear exceeds the value and merit of its cause. It is a great sin to love or fear any creature above its worth, as if it were master of all our temporal and eternal comforts. When the people of Israel hear of their enemies, alliance against them, their hearts are moved as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind, Isaiah 7 verse 2. It is a sad sight to see people shaking and quivering like trees on a windy day, yet... That is what the house of David does, partly because of their remembrance of past calamities, but especially because of their unbelief in God's protecting care in the present and future dangers. This is too often the fault of good people in creature fear and creature love. They transgress the due bounds of moderation. It is noted of Jacob that he was a man of much faith. He had the sweetest encouragement to strengthen it both from former experiences and from God's gracious promises. Yet, when Esau draws near, he is greatly afraid and distressed. Moments earlier, God had graciously appeared to him and sent a royal guard of angels to attend him, Genesis 32, verses 1 and 2. Despite this encouraging vision, he is greatly afraid and distressed as soon as Esau approaches. Next, the inordinancy of fear. The sinfulness of our fear lies in its excessiveness. To fear something more than we ought is bad enough, but to magnify its power above that of a creature is sinful. When we exalt a creature's power by fearing it, we give it ascendancy over us. 
In effect, we act as if it had arbitrary and absolute dominion over us and our comforts, to do with them whatever it pleases. In so doing, we elevate the creature beyond its class and rank to the place of God. This is a very sinful and evil fear. Trust in any creature as if it had God's power to help us, or to fear any creature as if it had God's power to hurt us, is exceedingly sinful. It provokes God. He condemns such inordinate trust in our text. The people of Israel want to turn to Egypt for help. They trust in their horses and horsemen because they are strong. In their opinion, Egypt is able to secure them against all that God declared through the prophet to turn them from their sinful and inordinate dependence upon the creature, he warns them. Now the Egyptians are men, and not God, and their horses flesh, and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helps shall fall, and he that is open shall fall down, and they all shall fail together, Isaiah 31, verse 3. It is a sinful and dangerous mistake. To give to a creature that trust and dependence that belongs to God alone. To look upon people as if they were gods. And horses, as if they were spirits. This is sinful. All creatures, even the strongest, are like divine or ivy. If they clasp the pole, wall, or oak, they find support. But if they entangle themselves with one another like the Israelites with the Egyptians, they all fall down. We incline to a sinful trust and dependence upon each other, to an inordinate fear and dread of each other. We act as if the creature were a god rather than a man, a spirit rather than flesh. Thus, our fear magnifies and exalts a creature, putting, as it were, in God's room and place. God rebukes his sin in his own people. I, even I, am he that comforts you. Who are you? that you should be afraid of a man that shall die, and the son of man, which shall be made as grass, and forgets the Lord your Maker. Isaiah 51, verses 12 to 13. It is evident that fear exalts people, and belittles God. It thinks upon a person's harmful power so much that it forgets God's saving power. In this way, a mortal worm, which perishes as a grass, eclipses the glory of the great God, who stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. Christ cautions his disciples against this evil, and do not fear them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28. Be careful not to fear any man, is it the power of making or marring you were in his hands as if it were his will and pleasure to save or ruin you. Do not fear those who can only touch your body, as if they could damn your soul. Do not attribute to any creature God's sovereign and incommunicable power and fear its influence. The sinfulness of fear consists in the distracting influence it has upon the heart, in which it unfits us for the discharge of our duties. At times fear puts people in such a frenzy in their thoughts into such disorder that they receive little support or relief from their graces or from their reason. Under extraordinary fear, both grace and reason, like the wheels of a watch, wand above its due height, stand still and have no motion at all. 
It is rare to find a man of such constancy of heart and mind in the day of fear. It's Jehoshaphat. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There comes a great multitude against you from beyond the sea on this side, Syria. And behold, they be in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord, Second Chronicles 20, verses 2-3. He set himself, meaning he fixed and composed his heart for prayer in a time of great fright and terrible alarm. It is rare to find such constancy and evenness of mind. Most people are like those whom the prophet describes when the enemy besieges Jerusalem, the people's joy turns to panic. Isaiah 22, verses 2 and 3. The city becomes tumultuous. Some people run to the tops of their houses, either to hide or mourn. The mere apprehension of misery kills many before the enemy's sword touches any. None of them run into their closets to seek God. The city is full of stirs, but not of prayers. Fear makes them cry to the mountains rather than God, Isaiah 22, verse 5. The best people find it difficult to keep their thoughts from wandering and their minds from distraction in the greatest calm. It is a thousand times more difficult in a tumult of fear. Sinful fear. It's power. The sinfulness of fear consists in its power to dispose and incline people to use sinful means to escape danger. It casts them into the hands of temptation. The fear of man brings a snare, Proverbs 29, verse 25. Satan spreads a net, and fear drives people right into it. Fear led Abraham, a great believer, into the snare of deception. This resulted in the great discredit of religion, for it was a strange sight to see Abimelech, a heathen, rebuking Abraham, Genesis 20, verse 9. God rebukes his people for the same evil, and of whom have you been afraid or feared? Did you have lied and have not remembered me, Isaiah 57, verse 11? Fear leads to a double lie, one in words and one in deeds. Hypocrisy is a lie in deeds, a practical lie. The history of the church abounds with sad examples of deception through fear. It is Satan's great weapon to make his temptations victorious over men. Christian fear or religious fear. There is a holy and a laudable fear which is our treasure, not our torment. It is the chief ornament of the soul. Its beauty and perfection, not its unhappiness or sin. Natural fear is a pure and simple passion of the soul. Sinful fear is a disordered and corrupt passion of the soul. But the awful filial fear of God is a natural passion sanctified, changed, and baptized into the name and nature of a spiritual grace. This fear is also mentioned in our text. It is prescribed as an antidote against sinful fear. It devours carnal fear. Is Moses' serpent devoured those of the enchanters, Exodus 7, verse 12. Living night and day in the fear of man is one of the worst judgments. Deuteronomy 28, verses 65 to 67. But living all the day long in the fear of God is one of the sweetest mercies. Proverbs 23, verse 17. To fear a man shortens our days, but to fear of God prolongs them. Proverbs 10, verse 27. The fear of man is a fountain of mischief and misery. 
but the fear of God is a fountain of life. Proverbs 14, verse 27. The fear of man causes people to run to evil. Proverbs 29, verse 25. But the fear of God causes them to depart from evil. Proverbs 16, verse 6. This fear is a gracious habit or principle which God plants in the soul, whereby it is kept under a holy awe of the eye of God. As a result, it is inclined to do what pleases God and avoid what he forbids and hates. There are four parts to this definition. One, God plants his fear in the soul as a fixed and permanent habit. It is not, therefore, a natural product of our heart, but a supernatural infusion and implantation. I will put my fear in their hearts. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. To fear a man is natural. To fear God is wholly supernatural. Number two, this fear puts us all under the awe of God's eye. My heart stands in awe of your word. Psalm 119, verse 161. It is a reproach to people servants to be eye servants, but it is a praise and honor of God's servants to be so. Number three, this fear inclines us to do what pleases God. Hence, fearing God and work in righteousness are related, Acts 10, verse 35. If we fear God, we dare not ignore what he commands. If his fear is exalted in our hearts, it will enable us to obey him in duties accompanied with self-denial. Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Genesis 22, verse 12. Number four, this fear engages and to some degree enables the soul to shun and avoid whatever displeases God. Job refused to touch what God had forbidden. Therefore God honored him with this excellent description. He was one that feared God in a stewed evil. Job 1, verse 1. Thus you have the types of fear.